Hello, and welcome to Prodig Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, the Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigation Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to discuss the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, AMLA 2020. This is the most comprehensive set of reforms to U.S. anti-money laundering laws since the passage of the USA Patriot Act in 2001. And while there's a lot to the act, there are some very important changes and enhancements that should have an immediate and long-lasting impact on anti-money laundering. Joining us today is anti-money laundering expert and Gibson Dunn litigation partner, Matt Biden. Matt is co-chair of the firm's Financial Institutions Group and a member of the firm's White Collar Defense and Investigations Group. His practice is focused on the expert negotiations and litigation of complex and diverse regulatory and enforcement matters on behalf of both individuals and organizations with a concentration on matters related to financial institutions and complex situations involving the government. Prior to joining Gibson Dunn in August 2019, Matt was a litigation partner at Debevoy and Plimpton. And then prior to joining Debevoy, Mr. Bybin served for three and a half years at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he was executive VP and general counsel for Chase Consumer and Community Banking, which included private wealth management, card and merchant services, auto finance, student loan, consumer banking, business banking, and mortgage banking businesses. Mr. Bybin supervised a team of approximately 600 attorneys and professionals and served on the executive committee of Chase Consumer and Community Banking. Prior to J.P. Morgan Chase, Matt served as executive vice president and deputy general counsel at Bank of New York Mellon for almost seven years, becoming the second youngest person in Bank of New York's history to be promoted to executive vice president. He also served as Bank of New York Mellon's chief litigation counsel and supervised various corporate functions that included the office of corporate secretary. Matt spent the first 12 years of his career in government, serving in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, where he was an AUSA in the Criminal Division, where he received the Attorney General's Director Award for Superior Performance. Previously, he was an ADA in the New York County District Attorney's Office. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining me today. Many thanks, Scott. Nice to be here with you. Appreciate the kind introduction. Sure. I really appreciate you joining so, Matt, you've had a obviously a really interesting career in which you've been a state and federal prosecutor. You had several in-house compliance roles with global financial services companies, and you're now working as outside counsel advising financial services clients on regulatory enforcement. You've worked in anti-money laundering and financial crime before and after the passage of the Patriot Act. So when preparing for this episode, you reminded me of something that those of us that are in this kind of take for granted, which is how anti-money laundering legislation has really been adapted over time based on you know, how banks and brokerages have been exploited over the years by different categories of criminal organizations to launder illicit proceeds and fund illegal activity. And I think our listeners would be really interested to hear just how that progression went from these different criminal organizations and the different types of criminal activity and law enforcement's and legislative responses to counter it, and how that has changed anti-money laundering over the past few decades. Sure. Yeah, happy to, Scott. And I'll 
you know, after I give you just kind of a gross oversimplification, but kind of an important framework of how we got here and to the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, I'll, I'll also weave in a little bit of my specific work history as it relates. But if you go back to the beginning, the Bank Secrecy Act was enacted in 1970. And the focus was really on stopping the flow of illegal proceeds relating to organized crime. It was organized crime focused. Then if you fast forward to the 80s and 90s, obviously the United States priorities shifted and the war on drugs became primary and the focus of uh, anti-money laundering efforts moved to fighting narcotics trafficking and the proceeds that came with it. And if you think about it, banks at that time were essentially deputized or you know, became confidential informants, if you think about a law enforcement rubric. And through the SAR process, you know, they would surreptitiously be required to report on their clients. But it also brought scrutiny of the banks and enforcement related to whether or not they were turning a blind eye to customers' fraud and money laundering. And with the low standard for corporate liabilities, banks became easy targets. Again, that was the beginning of the scrutiny of banks before Again, the priorities were really on fighting narcotics trafficking, organized crime. Then we fast forward to 2001, aftermath of September 11th, Patriot Act, as you said. And then the focus moves to financial crimes enforcement relating to terrorist financing and international terrorism. And scrutiny now of banks increases even more. Banks are in part partners to the kind of patriotic effort of rooting out international terrorism, but also are criticized, not just by bank regulators, but then increasingly by prosecutors with kind of amorphous understandings and moving goalposts around what compliance should look like. And it brought with it some internal investigations, big fines, the enlisting of elite law firms and top consultants and the like. And that kind of takes us forward now 20 years to here, which we're going to talk about today. My background is kind of intertwined with all of that. As you said, I was a state prosecutor. And I worked in the early 90s leading international narcotics trafficking prosecutions, wiretaps, and we were focused on tracking and seizing both drugs and money and kind of doing anti-money laundering before it became fashionable, frankly. I went to the Southern District of New York, as you said, I was a federal prosecutor, and I focused on the Genovese crime family, including using Bank Secrecy Act as part of the, you know, the arrows we had in our quiver in money laundering violations to go after different illicit activities. For September 11th, I was in the Southern District. My unit was the Organized Crime and Terrorism Unit. They've since broken those units up. But so we pivoted, you know, everyone in the unit to all hands on deck around the terrorist attacks. And so I was using and aware of the Patriot Act from its inception. When I left public service and went to the Bank of New York, as you said, the first responsibilities I had was negotiating two ongoing investigations, separate distinct investigations, one long-running money laundering investigation involving the Bank of New York conducted by the Southern District of New York involving Russian money laundering, separate investigation out of the Eastern District of New York around a failure to file a timely suspicious activity report. And as part of negotiating those two resolutions, those two separate non-prosecution agreements, we also undertook to revamp the entire BSA program and I was on point for that from legal perspective, as well as leading compliance efforts related as well. When I was at J.P. Morgan, we had the resolution of the Madoff investigations with federal prosecutors. And so I was involved as the general counsel of those consumer businesses in reviewing the businesses 
in light of those resolutions and kind of de-risking is we'll talk about later. And then in private practice, I've worked with non-banks, banks, money transmitters, others around the ever-expanding remit of the Bank Secrecy Act, human trafficking, non-banks, money transmitters. So all I would say is this, this legislation, make no mistake, it's a major addition to that history and moving from focus not just on international terrorism to domestic terrorism, but also seeking kind of a better balance, if you will, with the financial services community and giving some guidance, hopefully some relief to banks, as well as big incentives uh, not to fail to comply. Thanks, Matt. That was a that was a great backdrop. You and I met when you were at Bank of New York. You know, you reminded me of the the Russian money laundering thing. Is it Lucy Edwards was one of the main fact? Yes. One of the main characters in that. I I was at a conference. It was like manning the booth AML conference, and Lucy Edwards approached me and came up, and she was making a case as to why someone with her background would be ideally suited to work in an anti-money laundering advisory practice. And, you know, I didn't want to be rude. I heard her out, but I kind of knew then that it was probably not going to happen. But then what was really funny is I was then approached by someone who had a similar criminal background for having committed criminal money laundering, was also a speaker at the conference. And he, I can't remember the guy's name, but he says to me, he goes, you know, I saw you talking to Lucy Edwards and you know, I have the same background, but she didn't do time and I did time. And he thought this was helping give him a leg up. Bona fides. In his yep. candidacy to, to work in our practice. Fairly sure that neither of them are going to join our practice, but was still pretty entertaining. So a new statute without the budget to allocate additional resources to investigate and enforce it isn't very meaningful. But conversely, whenever newly passed legislation includes language to significantly increase law enforcement resources, it can have long-term implications on law enforcement and regulatory enforcement trends. And certainly this new law has a number of provisions to provide the government, particularly Treasury, with some enhanced resources in the fight against money laundering. What specifically does AMLA 2020 do to increase law enforcement resources focused on money laundering and what's the likely long-term effect? Great question. So the short answer is it gives special hiring authority to FinCEN, creates new roles and adds resources. I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit, but there's a meaningful increase in resources. So as I said, there's special hiring authority for FinCEN and the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. There are some unique roles that are created the FinCEN domestic liaison to oversee the different regions of the United States. And so you'll have FinCEN coverage regionally of, of the country. And then as well, there'll be attaches that Treasury and FinCEN will hire uh, to work in foreign intelligence with foreign intelligence, liaise with them at, and be stationed at U.S. embassies and or foreign government facilities. So you'll have much more global coordination and opportunities for communication. There's a subcommittee that's on innovation and technology to be created to advise the Secretary of Treasury. With it comes BSA innovation officers. So there's there's a lot there. It's noteworthy. These aren't frontline enforcement headcount. I don't want to overstate what they are, but they are important additional heads, resources, and opportunities for more information and you take that with the penalties we'll talk about, the whistleblower provisions, et cetera, there's only, only one conclusion, which is 
more attention, more scrutiny, and you have to, as a bank or financial institution, expect additional inquiries from law enforcement as a result, as well as from regulators. Thanks, Matt. So we're talking about increased law enforcement resources. And since the law enforcement mission is primarily punitive in nature, it seems only fitting to discuss how this new statute has significantly expanded the penalties for Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering violations. Can you walk us through those enhanced penalties and, and what they could mean? Yeah, absolutely. And this will get people's attention because it is a harbinger of increased enforcement as expanded penalties create all kinds of additional risks as well as possibly increased incentives for prosecutors. So just as a, as a context, DOJ has been increasingly aggressive in using its money laundering authority to police international corruption and bribery. And that's illustrated by the 1MDB, the FIFA, the PDVSA prosecutions. And Biden administration is indicating that cracking down on illicit finance at home will be a top priority as well as abroad. So these new penalties will help the government do that. There's a new prohibition on knowingly concealing or misrepresenting material fact from or to financial institution concerning ownership or control of assets involved in transactions over a million dollars. And then there's another new provision that makes it a crime to knowingly conceal or misrepresent a material fact from or to a financial institution concerning source of funds. Penalties for violating these provisions are up to 10 years imprisonment or a million dollar fine. That's not quite as, I think, eye-catching as the enhancements to existing Bank Secrecy Act penalties. Among other things, the Act permits the imposition of damages for repeat violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. Specifically, repeat violators may be subject to civil penalties in an amount of the greater of three times the profit gained or loss avoided by the results of the violation or two times the maximum penalty with respect to the violation. So those are meaningful increases and in enhancements. So a few other, you know, interesting provisions, including that if the person was employed at a financial institution at the time of a violation, there's a clawback provision where the financial institution will be repaid or can seek to be repaid any bonus paid during the calendar years of the violation. For egregious violations, individuals can be prohibited from sitting on U.S. financial institution boards for 10 years. I'm, I'm not sure how much that will end up actually getting used, but it's interesting. Important footnote is these penalties are forward-looking only as of the date of the enactment of the uh, statute. They're not going to be applied retroactively. So that begs the question of what's the impact of all of this? And again, I think it's hard not to see this as increased leverage for prosecutors because the consequences are higher. The bigger dollars bring bigger headlines, which sometimes incentivizes prosecutors, as we know. And I think this is just another harbinger of increased scrutiny and potential enforcement in this space. I agree, Matt. And in fact, this next question, I think, could even further amplify things. So when Dodd-Frank was first passed following the last financial crisis, not long ago, but it is, it created the SEC whistleblower program, which since its inception in 2011, has led to more than $2 billion in financial remedies and over $700 million in whistleblower awards. Can we expect to see a huge uptick in AML whistleblower cases? And if so, what should we expect to see? 
This is another one of the kind of take notice provisions in the statute, which is a major change in the whistleblower provisions, meaningful increase in the award program and bolstering of the whistleblower program. It provides for awards of up to 30% in cases where the government secures monetary sanctions of more than a million dollars. And in those cases, this is important. Treasury shall, quote unquote, pay the whistleblowers who voluntarily provide information. If you compare that to the previous program, which was quite modest, it was discretionary and it was capped at a payment of $150,000. So this is a huge shift in terms of incentives for whistleblowers as well as plaintiff's lawyers. There's protection in the statute and authorizes referrals to the Department of Labor if there are allegations of retaliation against whistleblowers, which gives them more leverage and protection. And just, Scott, as you said, if you think about by comparison, what happened with the SEC when they instituted their whistleblower program in 2010, there was a huge uptick and just by way of numbers. And I know you had dollars amount, but in 2020, the SEC office of the whistleblower office that receives these whistleblower complaints received 40,000 tips. And they came from every state in the union, 50 states, as well as 130 countries. So it's just a huge increase in scope and breadth. And it seems like you have to prepare for the same here. Begs the question of, will this weaponize frontline employees with information? Will they and plaintiff lawyers kind of skip internal reporting processes for the bounties? How will banks respond by trying to make sure that this information gets captured internally, not just reported out? Big questions uh, relating to this change, but it's certainly a huge incentive to identify issues relating to uh, AML compliance. No, I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, one of the other things that try to compare the Dodd-Frank whistleblower sort of uptick to banking is I think it's the number of people that have visibility into problems inside a financial institution in comparison to maybe a, a much smaller number of people inside a publicly traded company that might be privy to things that are improper. It has the potential of being a force multiplier and almost like a geometric expansion of the quantum of people who are potentially in a position to be a whistleblower. You think of the front line, you know, the first line, the second line, there's a lot of people involved in opening accounts, maintaining accounts, annual KYC, effectuating transactions. I mean, there's just, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of different eyes and it doesn't take more than a, you know, a couple who feel that their concerns aren't getting attention or that they're again, incentivized to go out to make this a, a meaningful concern for financial institutions. So that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is, in light of that, should banks consider redoubling their efforts to encourage bank personnel to report wrongdoing using internal confidential reporting mechanisms to avoid the kind of potential exposure that an externally reported whistleblower matter might trigger. Yeah, no, I think redoubling is is exactly right. Although I think some of what comes out of this, and we'll talk about this later as well, is not just redoubling, but really a fresh look, uh, you know, a new take on what all of this means. But certainly a hygiene checkup on your director's mailbox, on your employee hotline. Are you analyzing the alerts that are coming out of it? What are the trends? Is it You know, is it typically the case with an employee hotline? Is it all just personnel HR related complaints or are there actually complaints that, uh, you know, have multiple issues that are just being categorized, for example, as HR complaints when 
maybe there is something around AML compliance you need to be aware of. What's the internal oversight? What are those processes? Do you need other means to identify? What's the training look like? Again, if it's just business as usual, there's a very good chance that you're going to be exposed to the cost of not having your employees internally report up the way you want. And that's a pretty big external stick. So it's worth really focusing on what is happening in your organization and are you getting what you need from your you know, employees by way of raising their hands on these issues. So things are definitely ratcheting up, you know, with the whistleblower bounties, increased government resources for money laundering investigations. We were talking before we started recording about, you know, this is the ideal opportunity for banks to sort of take a fresh look at what they're doing in in contemplation of what seems likely to be a significant uptick in AML enforcement. Yeah. The bottom line is I think banks have to take this and financial institutions and prepare. You don't want to have done nothing. You want to do something in response to this. And ideally, you want to do something that actually gives you some additional benefit in terms of risk mitigation, risk assessment and the like. And, you know, that includes, do you need a fresh risk assessment right now? Because the business models and the risks associated with some of these issues are changing. Uh, what's your internal escalation look like? The people that need a seat at the table are the right people there. Is it just compliance? Do you have your business heads? You know, what is the internal escalation look like? What is your internal oversight look like? What What is your board reporting look like on AML risks? I mean, it's not, you know, just enough to put a big book of SARS on the end of the table and say you've satisfied. What does that really look like? I mean, that's what we used to do 25 years ago. But what does it really look like? Do you need an independent assessment? Again, underprivileged, but do you want someone to come in and kick your tires and give you just scrutiny that you may not be able to bring yourself? You want to make sure you're coming from a solid foundation when that external scrutiny comes, whether it's a bank regulator or a prosecutor. Do you have old MRAs that are open um, and haven't been closed in your relating to your Bank Secrecy Act program? A lot of times these there are MRAs floating out there. Not MRIs, they usually get more attention, but that, you know, get kind of partially closed and then moved on and bank regulators will come back five years later and say, look, this is still an open issue that's never really been addressed. You don't want that right now with all that's going on. So I do think banks want to get ahead of these issues, take a, a fresh look, get some fresh eyes potentially and make sure that you're really managing the risks that, that are now present in this space. I would think also, not like they don't, Many banks aren't a little overwhelmed by the many changes that are coming up. But, you know, the other thing that is always top of mind and that factors heavily into compliance is organizational culture and at the ethical culture that's in place. Because if you've got toxic culture where people feel disenfranchised or embittered and then you introduce whistleblower bounties, you've got a pretty, pretty much of a recipe for disaster. So ethical culture, organizational culture, you know, I think it has to be high on the on the board's agenda, too. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it that sometimes gets oversimplified to tone at the top. You know, are they giving the right messaging to the CEO? Is the CEO's messaging or C-suite messaging kind of consistent with the tone at the top? Not enough just to look at tone at the top. You need to, you know, really look at What's the mood in the middle? What's happening in the middle of the organization? And what's the buzz down at the bottom? You want to, you know, look up and down the organization. As you said, it's not likely going to be a C-suite executive 
that's raising their hand looking for this whistleblower bounty. It's going to be someone, you know, on the front line down at the bottom who feels like this is not getting the attention it needs. And so that mood, that culture, you really want to make sure you understand and, and change if it needs to be changed. No, I couldn't agree more. So the U.S. is often criticized for what's viewed as aggressive pursuit of certain categories of enforcement that are extraterritorial to the United States. I know sometimes speaking at conferences outside the U.S. or just with a a multicultural audience, that extraterritorial topic always invites difficult questions from the audience. AMLA looks like it's going to add more fuel to that fire. And historically, U.S. law enforcement's ability to compel foreign banks to provide information and bank records has been limited to the MLAT process, letters rogatory, um, use of Bank of Nova Scotia subpoenas, or there's somewhat a limited authority to investigate foreign banks who are using U.S. banks for correspondent banking. So how has AMLA 2020 extended the reach of U.S. law enforcement when it comes to investigating foreign banks? Right. So excellent question. You're absolutely right. This will generate a lot of heat overseas. And it'll be interesting to see how this provision ends up actually playing out. It's a dramatic expansion of the ability to use Patriot Act subpoenas to compel production of documents and category of documents that were not previously subject to subpoena. In the past, up to date, the Patriot Act subpoenas are used very infrequently. They have limited value and they could really only reach records relating to the correspondent business of a foreign bank. Again, what we're talking about here really are foreign banks with little or no U.S. presence. Not They don't have a branch. They may just do U.S. dollar clearing or have a correspondent relationship. All of a sudden, the AMLAW change says that basically all the documents of a foreign bank, even with no U.S. presence, other than that correspondent relationship, is subject to subpoena. And the subpoena is subject, in the words of the statute, to information on quote, any accounts, end quote, at a foreign bank. So it's incredibly broad. As someone who once got a paycheck from the Department of Justice for a long time, there is nothing more frustrating at certain points than waiting on letters rogatory to try to pursue an investigation as you go through foreign diplomatic channels to get information that you need for your investigation. Only worse still is letters rogatory where you don't even have the benefit of a mutual legal assistance treaty. So that's it's time consuming, it's formal, it's burdensome. This is just a subpoena. And this is going to you know, create a meaningful uh, set of issues with your foreign bank clients, my foreign bank clients, because they are rightly going to say our home country rule, our home country law says no. And the penalty provision for not complying with these subpoenas is $50,000 per day. Banks are prohibited from notifying their customers. That's like SAR non-disclosure. But the real issue is with home country privacy laws, which make it illegal in some instances to produce the information that will be subpoenaed. The AMLAW specifically and explicitly says it's not a basis to quash that the home country privacy laws make it illegal to produce this information. So what does all of that mean? We can talk a little bit about what it means from an anticipation perspective. But what it definitely means to me is some foreign bank is going to end up in court challenging the application of this statute. Just because the U.S. says it's so in its legislation 
does not mean that I think constitutionally or otherwise, a separate sovereign is necessarily going to comply. But, you know, it's going to be a brave bank that's willing to fight that fight as opposed to cooperate with the U.S. government and all of the resources it has. But it's hard not to imagine there's some kind of challenge coming. That said, for those that aren't challenging it, it's a dramatic change of what is expected in terms of production and reach that the U.S. prosecutor has into a foreign bank's records and documents. I think it's going to be really interesting. And, and it, it almost is incumbent on U.S. law enforcement to be very thoughtful about that first set of subpoenas and the facts around that case because it's going to create case law. I, I think that's right. And particularly, you know, with each new country that is, you know, you know, in the in the crosshairs with this expanded authority, again, I think they're going to have to be thoughtful in terms of who they subpoena and what the facts are in that instance, as opposed to the way maybe things are normally done when spraying the community with right. in a case. It probably needs to be probably a little bit more of a thought process behind this as this unfolds. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, the other thing foreign banks need to think about in light of this, because the connection, again, which I think is subject to legal challenge, but the connection is the correspondent account, is if you are a foreign bank, how important is that correspondent account? And, you know, what does your AML program look like compared to a U.S. AML program? Like, if you feel confident in your program and that it would meet U.S. muster and the correspondent accounts are really important to your business model, then you have no choice other than either comply or challenge the constitutionality or the basis of the. But it's also the case that as part of good risk management, you may decide as a foreign bank to close your correspondent accounts. And on the flip side of that, as it relates to U.S. banks, they have to prepare as well because who they have correspondent banking relationships with just dramatically, the amount of scrutiny that those banks may get has changed dramatically. And that may increase the scrutiny that the U.S. clearing bank gets. Correspond again. So again, I think this will cause them to U.S. banks to reevaluate whether the scrutiny is worth it and whether they want to keep all the correspondent relationships that they have. The financial regulators in the U.S. published a somewhat concise but useful FAQ document and frequently asked questions, which at least was an effort at preemptively addressing some questions about suspicious activity report filing arising from the new legislation and also to take on some enduring questions about how banks should go about complying. The document also takes on some important questions about how banks should respond to and what their SAR filing obligations are after receiving a law enforcement requests to keep an account open, service of grand jury subpoenas, and it offers some advice on how to address negative news alerts on customers, which is interesting. Can you explain some of the guidance that's in the FAQ document? And let me start by saying, look, kudos to them for trying to address some of the real life issues that those of us that have been in-house dealing with these issues have dealt with and those of us outside that are supporting institutions deal with all the time. There is a real conundrum with practical questions around when to file SARS, how much work you need to do, the defensive filing on multiple news reports on the same story, 
there's a huge volume at a lot of institutions of internal alerts that get generated from automated software as well as from you know frontline employees. And these are questions that come up over and over again. I'll address some of them with you. The keep open issue. So you know, law enforcement, and this goes back many, many years, for their own reasons to further their investigation, will make a request of a financial institution to keep open an account. They may have only been alerted to the account because of a SAR that was filed by the bank. And then law enforcement wants to give it time, give itself time to see what other criminality goes on. And having identified the bank accounts or accounts where the transactions are going through is very helpful to them. And so they ask the institution to keep it open. It puts the, you know, the financial institution in a hard place. They want to cooperate with law enforcement. They want to be helpful. Banks that I've worked with are all looking to be on the right side of these questions. But on the other hand, there's no guarantees. There's no protection in doing so. And so they are always subject to criticism. Now here, the FAQ says that the institution shouldn't face, you know, retrospective criticism for keeping it open. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really give any of the types of true protection because it ultimately says the institution still has to comply requirements of the Bank Secrecy Act, including ongoing risk-based monitoring and as appropriate filing of SARS. It's good that they address the issue, but again, it still puts it on the institution to make these decisions. There's a few others that fit into the same category. So multiple negative news reports, as you said, you may have a negative news report on a customer. Uh, it could be a foreign news account, Mexican newspaper, then it gets picked up by the LA Times, then it gets picked up by some news service somewhere else. It may all be based on the same underlying news story. But if they hit at different times, there's always a question of, do you need to file a supplemental SAR? Do you need to file a SAR? Like, what do you do with these alerts? And this clarifies that you don't have to independently investigate each next negative news report based on the same underlying event. And again, this can be very helpful to, you know, organizations with uh, SAR analysts and investigators that are stretched thin when otherwise they're being barraged with, you know, incoming media reports and the need to kind of respond. Um, similarly, when it relates to subpoenas or negative news. So, you know, a financial institution gets a, gets a subpoena, grand jury subpoena. The question is, just based on that fact alone, do you need to file a SAR? Or there's negative news criticizing you know, a client raising questions about whether a client engaged in illicit activity or wrongdoing. And these are all questions, you know, whether or not in and of itself, you have to just file a SAR. And that's a defensive filing kind of mindset as, you know what, better safe than sorry, file a SAR, even if it says nothing or not much more than what's publicly available. This said, you know, helpfully that all that you should be considering as an institution before filing all information available to determine whether to, to file. And again, that's just helpful because it's a bit of indication that just in and of itself, you know, you don't need to be filing these types of SARS. And then, you know, the other question that comes up over and over and over again is, okay, we filed a SAR or multiple SARS on a client. Do we have to exit the business? And your business partners are going to say, it's a good client. You know, we obviously can't notify them about the SARS, but we don't think there's anything really wrong with the client, even though it was the right thing to do to file those SARS. And then the control folks, you know, your your risk people, your compliance, they may say, look, we got to terminate just by virtue of who wants to take this risk. And so what the FAQ speaks to is, you know, deploying risk procedures and determining it talks about escalation and reviews and protocols. And so if you've got a healthy 
oversight process where there is escalation, there is a review, different people are at the table. And, you know, when I was at Bank of New York, we had the first AMLOC, Anti-Money Laundering Oversight Committee. And these types of issues would get escalated and everyone would sit around and you try to come to the right decision. But the, the bottom line here is the FAQ says there's no specific number of SARS that financial institution must consider to trigger any particular escalation or, or exiting. So again, there's a, a lot in there speaking to these issues. It doesn't really resolve all of these issues, but I think it's healthy again that they're hearing the industry issues and trying to give at least some guidance in that regard. That was really helpful. I mean, the one thing I want to follow up on because I think the FAQ could maybe even be a source of confusion because yes, you shouldn't just file a SAR on the basis of having received a subpoena from law enforcement. But I think it's fair to say that there's probably an expectation that you're going to use that as an opportunity to educate yourself on that customer and their behaviors for, if for no other reason than to not get blindsided by the next time you hear from that law enforcement agency and you didn't see fit to take a hard look at what that customer is doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me just be crystal clear on that, which is what we're talking about is kind of the outwardly facing SAR filing, not what the institution should be doing. We could do a whole podcast on what that internal review should look like. But if you get a subpoena focused on a client, not any institution worth its salt is going to do a full review of account activity of related. I mean, you need to not just in responding to the subpoena, but as a matter, matter of prudent risk management, you need to do your own work around that client and see what the you know government is focused on and looking at. So that was Gibson Dunn, partner and AML expert, Matt Biden. This concludes this episode of Fraudy Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraudy Strategy, where we will have volume two of this episode, given the quantity of information and its importance to our listeners. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudyedstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 